Welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lee. Our guest today, New York Door. This show is sponsored by the Well Coffee House, a Nashville-area coffee house that provides fresh-roasted coffee along with house-made pastries, breakfast, and lunch offerings. There are four locations to serve you in the Nashville area, Brentwood, Green Hills, downtown, and Bellevue. You can get more info at wellcoffeehouse.org, the Well Coffee House where coffee changes lives. We thank our co-presenting sponsor, Wellspire, Nashville's Learning and Development Center located in the Gulch. Our news is presented by Sutherland and Belk, a family-owned injury law firm. If you or a loved one has been hurt in an accident, call Taylor or Russell at 615-846-6200. See what your rights are and if they can help. There is baseball this weekend. Three games with Hawaii at Hawkins Field. So those will be on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. The guest line on which our buddy New York door is on today is presented by Bowling Branch, which is started by Vanderbilt graduate Scott and Missy Tannen. I had no clue how comfortable sheets could be till I got them. They are fair trade certified, meaning they are made under safe conditions by men and women treated and paid fairly. Try them for a month. You can return them for free, but you will not want to. Once you get these sheets, try the mattress. That was voted the best mattress of 2018. Go to bowlandbranch.com. That is spelled B-O-L-L. Enter the promo code Vandy and get $50 off your first set of sheets. The question and answer session that we do with New York Door is presented by Vanderbilt fan Josh Minton, an independent insurance agent operating out of Brentwood. Josh can take care of all your insurance needs. Call him today, 615-933-1979. Email him at josh at hqinsurance.com. Follow him at joshuamintonhq or facebook.com forward slash jdmintonhq. He is my insurance agent. Give him a try and tell him you heard about it on the podcast. New York Door joins me now. We are doing this podcast, oh, I'm going to say about five hours before first pitch of Friday's game with Hawaii. So by the time it gets aired, it may be a little bit outdated, but probably not too outdated. New York Door, thank you for joining us today. I hope you are doing well. I am doing well and aloha, Chris. It is uh, it is a really fun weekend to watch Vanderbilt play Hawaii because it allows us to dream about uh, trying to convince our families to take a Hawaii vacation for the return trip in a year or two. For those that are wondering, um, it looks like most of the time that, uh, that Power 5 schools go out to play Hawaii, it is the opening weekend of the year. Um, so, you know, maybe plan for a mid-February, maybe early February, uh, to mid-February, um, trip out to Hawaii at some point in the next two years. Great minds think alike. I have been trying to finagle a trip to Hawaii for roughly a decade now. I have two states that I've not been to of the 50. One is Hawaii. The other is North Dakota. I don't know my excuse to get to North Dakota. I was close once, but didn't want to drive about 220 miles just to say I had been there. So I would like to go to Hawaii for the bucket list reason, but more because it's Hawaii. And I've been planting that seed for a while. I do not know if I've had any success getting it to take root. My angle has been, hey, look, if we take this trip now, I can write some of it off on taxes because it's legitimately a business trip. So it's cheaper to do that way. Uh, but I don't know that I have made enough traction on that yet. Yeah, I, I mostly want to pivot here to talk about 
the fact that you've been to every other state other than Hawaii and, and North Dakota and, and discuss one of my favorite episodes of, of the West Wing, that great fantasy show, which is basically the opposite of current political reality, uh, where uh, someone from North Dakota comes to the White House and, and tries to convince the White House that they should be allowed to just call themselves Dakota because South Dakota gets so much more tourism because people uh, automatically assume it's warmer because it's got South in the title to which uh, Allison Janney's character CJ replies, well, they've got that and also Mount, Mount Rushmore. Uh, so, right. Uh, right. I, I don't know what you go to North Dakota for unless you're into fracking. Um, but, go there to say you'd been there. I mean, maybe yes. to see you at North Dakota State football, they're pretty good, but This is a funny aside. Okay, well, first of all, the Vandy Sports Podcast has been heard in all 50 states and a few foreign Mm. countries as well at one point or another. I I have verified that. It has been listened to literally in every state. Number two, um, well, I forgot what number two was, but in any case, there's that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, you know, and interestingly enough, what surprised me, uh, yeah, I, I, this is not the first time Vanderbilt and Hawaii have played. Um, Hawaii reminded us that of that last night when they mentioned that in 1981, uh, they swept five games uh, on consecutive days from Vanderbilt. Um, and but uh, also the uh, the game versus St. Louis Billikens uh, was the first time those two programs have met. Uh, I am guessing that when Hawaii last faced Vanderbilt, they did not have a weekend rotation of consensus All-American, uh, consensus 1-1, and fringe first-rounder. Yeah, I am fairly certain that was not the case either. Yeah, so it's been, I, I mean, we, we last spoke uh, a week ago. Uh, Vanderbilt uh, was in the process of completing a five-game stretch with where their pitchers uh, were, were just absolutely unhittable. And um, in the, the, the handful of games since, the five-game since or six-game since, uh, that has just continued. And it's been a, a remarkable start. For the pitching staff, um, Scott Brown has guys guys throwing strikes. He has guys attacking the zone. The thing that I think has been most impressive is if you see these pitch counts on the five and six inning starts, um, you know, Ethan Smith and and Jack Leiter, I think both were under 80 pitches uh, in, in their five shutout innings this week. I think Kumar had it very under control. I think he was around... Uh, you know, maybe around 90 pitches for his six. Mason got a little bit further up, but I think he threw, did Mason throw seven innings? I believe he did. Yes. Yeah. And then, uh, and then Jake Eater had his longest outing as a, a Vandy boy. I think he was around 80 pitches for five and a third. So it's been, or five and two thirds, I should say, it's been really, really impressive run of high quality starts. And uh, I think one thing I just want to kick off on is um, talking about the, the freshman righties. Uh, and the numbers and how impressive they have been. Um, you know, I would add that at times we've seen a really impressive performance from Chris McElvain uh, this midweek. Nicky Maldonado has looked pretty good in, uh, in his appearances, although he did get, uh, give up a couple of runs on Wednesday. Um, and, you know, Luke Murphy, who's a redshirt sophomore, 
has flashed, uh, you know, the fire god biggest arm on the, on the staff this year, but has really struggled with control. Um, so his numbers are, are kind of out there. But if you look at the the five, the four freshmen who we expected to be the big contributors this year, and that was Jack Leiter, Michael Doolin, Sam Labaki, and Thomas Schultz, their numbers are insane, absolutely insane. We're talking 27 innings, 13 hits, four walks, and let me count it up here, 40, 40 strikeouts. Let me That's... put it let me put it another way, okay? Here are free pass rates. Free pass rate is the percentage of hitters you face that you either walk or hit. And then there's strikeout rate, which is the percentage of hitters you face you strike out, obviously. Here are walk and strikeout rates for these guys. Doolin four and forty-six, Schultz zero and thirty-two. Uh, Maldonado zero and twenty-six. Let's see who else. Who did I miss there? It was oh Schultz. Uh, Schultz, Schultz was Schultz was zero and thirty-seven, and Laboki is zero and thirty-two. That's crazy. Now I know level of competition, but this is kind of a shortcut of where I wanted to go anyway. Listen, South Alabama is is no nothing to slouch at. No, I South mean Alabama I'm not saying came in yeah. roughed up, but they had four four guys on their uh, in their lineup who returned from last year who collectively hit something like 315 with 36 strikeout 30, 36 home runs, and Leiter, Doolin, and Smith and Schultz just eviscerated that group. I think it was something like one of 16 with 13 strikeouts. Yeah, and the point is, it's not Monmouth or Brown, but it's not the SEC either. And here's where I was going to go, New York door. I think that it's you never want to make a prediction based on a sample size as small and of its nature. And so that's really not what I'm basing it on. I'm basing it on what we already know about the established guys with what we're seeing about these young guys. And by the way, I've seen plenty of young, good pitchers struggle mightily against this type of competition. The fact these guys can come in and throw strikes with the regularity that they have been and not get hit, I think you add those two things together, I think barring significant injury problems, I think this could be one of the greatest pitching staffs in college baseball history. Uh, I think, so, you know, the one challenge to that is the lack of left-handed performance. But if you get anything from Eric Kaiser, like we've seen, that that's just the most eyebrow-raising item on, on the stat sheet right now. Eric Kaiser has, is, has arguably had the most velocity on the staff. He, he has for, a 62% strikeout rate so far. Three yeah, innings, he, not much, but that's crazy. Uh, I think, is it 62% or is it higher? He's got eight strikeouts in three innings and yielded one walk and no hits. Uh, I, I think that's that ought to be an 80% strikeout rate. You know, I may have my, I do it off batter's faced. So I think you, I think Unless you are he, right. Uh, I think I just put yeah, the wrong no. number in. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he's faced 10 batters, walked one, yielded zero hits and struck out eight of them. And this is a guy who, uh, you know, the fastball has never been a question. The slider looks great right now, but the command is the bit has always been the biggest issue. And I would note that 
you know, he, as, as well as, uh, as Nikki Maldonado and Ethan Smith were forced to throw in really difficult conditions on Wednesday. It was snowing at the Hawk. There was a, a lot of difficulty in, in gripping secondary pitches. And uh, I think that would attribute to, you know, Ethan knocking up his first three walks of the year, whereas he had been perfect previously in, um, you know, what, seven innings pitched. Uh, it, it, for for Kais to come in and strike out all six batters he faced and have command of the zone, that was eye-opening. So, uh, you know, I would caution one lefty. I would caution relatively small sample size, although it's not like 90 innings pitched on an aggregate basis isn't something you can talk about. Uh, I would also caution, obviously, not the best competition uh, in the world, although certainly nothing to shake a stick at when you face teams like UConn and, uh, and Michigan and Cal Poly and South Alabama. Um, but, you know, when you think about the fact that as the season goes on, you also contract uh, the, the number of people who you get into the games. And I don't think you'll find five starters the, in, in the country, and I think everyone agrees with this, that are better than Mason Hickman, Kumar Rocker, uh, Jake Eater, Jack Leiter, and then Ethan Smith as a fifth guy. Um, and, and then if you, you look at the performance and the potential of some of these freshman righties, and then you can still t- turn around and say, okay, the worst performing regular pitcher on our staff right now is the guy who's the consensus All-American closer. That's, <laughs> you know, you're, you're certainly in a conversation where you, you got to get a little excited. Well, we're admittedly very much fishing around the edges, and that's really what you have to do to find anything about the pitching staff you don't like. You mentioned the lefties. Uh, that's one thing, although I think they just seem to get outs against whoever, whenever, however. So I question how much that does matter. The thing with Brown, okay, he's pitched one more time since when we last did this. It was effective in a box score way. He also gave up a couple of rockets. What do we think about him right now? I mean, I still bank on the fact that everything you said, he's Tyler Brown. There's nothing not to like about him, but I keep going back to that summer and saying, is there anything in there uh, that after he got hit hard for one more outing, even if it didn't necessarily show in the box score, to be concerned about? So if we roll back and go back uh, two years, probably to my guess is the, the first about a month into the season, you'll find a podcast uh, somewhere in there where we talked about pitch count. And we're, we're actually pretty critical of Brownie um, over two things. One, the walk rate and the pitch count. And I'm not actually right now focusing so much on on uh, as as uh, Stu would refer to him Dave McDow- McDonald uh, or McDowell um, which is to say Dan McDonald uh, at Louisville uh, I'm not worried about what he did over the summer right now I'm instead looking at Tyler as a freshman and what we saw there part of the reason why he walked so few people last year I think it was something like six and 54 innings or something like that was he goes right after batters. And uh, if you look at the ratio of hard hit balls for him that come on 0-2 counts, 
it is astounding. Um, the the ball that Isaiah Thomas made a catch on in uh, uh, in the game on Tuesday was was it Tuesday or Sunday? Sunday um, was an O2 count, and it was a fastball that caught too much of the middle of the plate. And I go back to pitch selection, and uh, at a certain point, you've got to you got to be in a, you've got to put your pitcher in a position where people aren't catching fastballs in the middle of the plate on an O2. Now, Brownlee's not calling for a middle-middle fastball on O2. That's on Tyler missing and missing into the wrong direction. If you're on an O2 count, you want to miss out of the zone, not back into the zone. But you know, you, you can do some work as a pitching coach. You can do some work as a catcher. And obviously, you can execute as a pitcher to make sure you're not allowing uh, you know, pitchers' pitches to end up as as barrels coming off, you know, 95 mile an hour plus off the off the bat. And I'm seeing thus far this year with him, not an arm issue, not a stuff issue, but a location and pitch selection issue that is reminiscent to his freshman year when he gave up some big rockets. And he didn't last year, but I, I really don't see it as a stuff problem. Uh, I think it's it's a little bit more of a a game call and a location execution issue. I have a hunch you're right. They talked about it in the Michigan game that he just went to the fastball one too many times. And if that's all that is, they will get that corrected. The strike throwing thing, you mentioned the podcast we did a couple of years ago where we were critical of Scott Brown. And they had a couple of years there where they just had one issue after another throwing strikes. I mean, they had good teams in 17 and 18, but they weren't great teams. Certainly not what we have been used to following this program over the last decade. But I asked Tim Corbin about that. I think it was Saturday was when I was there about the ability to throw more strikes across the board this year. And what I was getting at is, was that an issue of they have reconfigured their philosophy with their encouraging hitters just or their pitchers to go after hitters and not nibble as much? And that's been it. Uh, or has it been something else? And basically, he answered it pretty quickly. He said it's a talent issue. In other words, we've recruited better strike throwers. So I will let you respond to his answer there. Yeah, I, I think that's probably right. I mean, uh, some guys have a feel for strike throwing. Some guys don't. Um, I think you have to give a lot of credit to Brownie when you see the progression of a guy like Kumar Rocker from being a guy who's rep reputation as a senior in high school was unable to repeat, unable to, to be sharp and within the zone. And you saw six months into working with Scott Brown, uh, and he is, you know, one of the better strike throwers in the country with something like 30 strike, 30 walks and in a hundred plus innings as a freshman. And then, you know, you come into, uh, this weekend and, um, he's sitting at four walks in, in 12 innings and, and 21 strikeouts. And that is also having faced, uh, you know, very tight strike zones in the opening weekend out at, uh, at the MLB four. Okay. I want to do something we'll call the circle of trust. And what the circle of trust is, is if you were Tim Corbin, you are Managing out on Omaha in a close game, you know, could be the ninth inning, could be the sixth inning. 
and you've got to put one of these guys on the mound. I, I think we would say we know we trust Rocker, Hickman, um, those guys at this point, Tyler Brown. So that's three. We wouldn't argue about it. I think it's safe to say at this point you trust Leiter. Um, I think Jake Eater, maybe not there at the moment, but look, he closed the game on Omaha gonna, a year gonna, ago. Yeah, so, I'm going to challenge you on that for that okay. exact same reason that you just raised, that I think Eater uh, is, is certainly within the circle of trust. He's, he certainly was not sharp in the first few weeks of February in warmups. We were hearing that. He certainly was not sharp out in uh, Arizona. Uh, he was pretty darn good on uh on sunday um you know late in the the outing he started to lose his control a little bit but you know he he had a real good outing on sunday um and and as you note you know he was the guy who closed it out tyler brown was available uh in in game three of the college world series but jake heater's the man who wrote us to to a championship and that's not uh, an element of trust that's easy to run away from. So I, I would say if you're looking for a, a circle of trust, I think it's the uh, the three starters. Um, I think Jack Leiter, uh, it's it's weird when you've got a guy who's got 10 innings under his belt and has an 032 batting average against. Um, I, I still want to see a few more starts before I'm willing to say that, uh, you know, that Jack is going to be overcome be able to overcome adversity when he faces it because he will face adversity at this level. It's not high school. Uh, you can't just strike everyone out and not give up any hits and not yield base runners. Um, the first time he had to face adversity as a Commodore was when he walked a couple batters in his last inning uh, on, on Tuesday, and he responded very strongly. Um, he also is someone who very effectively pitches up and out of the zone with his fastball. As as the book gets out on him and as he faces more adept hitters, people are going to start laying off those pitches. So, uh, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how he responds to more talented lineups who have a better scouting report on him. Uh, other guys that I think are, are, in addition to the four starters that are in the circle of trust, obviously Tyler Brown. Um, I think Ethan Smith has taken a big step forward uh, with his control and his repeatability of delivery and has been outstanding. Um, you know, he's his line so far this year is 12 innings, six hits, three walks, 17 strikeouts. Uh, and his first two appearances, he didn't walk anyone in the first seven innings. So, you know, gangbusters. And, and then you've got the other freshman arms. And I, I think Doolin and Labaki, Labaki in particular, I would say, uh, is probably the one who looks the most solid to me uh, in that really controls things. He came in, got Jake Eater out of trouble on Sunday, uh, getting the last out of the the sixth inning. Um, Michael Doolin is the guy who I thought after Leiter was the the best coming in, and he's done nothing but but be outstanding. Um, Schultz, uh, you know, surprised me a little in that I wasn't expecting as much control as he has demonstrated. But those three guys certainly look like circle of trust participants, based on based on the early season. Yeah, Kaiser, that's... Uh, I, I think with Kaiser you have to see that the control is real 
and and then it's not going to fall apart before he 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 slides into that zone. And then uh, I will say, you know, McIlvain and, and Maldonado have looked very good. Um, so this might be the deepest pitching staff we've seen since uh, certainly certainly 2013, but maybe even 2011. Um, 2014 and 2015 were very deep, particularly in the regular season, but you saw some contraction when you went into Omaha. You could easily see, you know, somewhere between five to seven relievers in the circle of trust. Yeah, the way I was going to say it, on either the question sort of self-destructs for the reasons you said. I mean, unless he's a different pitcher this year, which, again, last outing he was good. So I think you go Hickman, Rocker, Leiter, Eater, Smith, Doolin, Laboki, Schultz, that's eight. Tyler Brown is nine. And then from there, uh, I don't think McIlwain's there yet. Maldonado, to me, the second inning he threw the other day, his stuff is a little fringy right now. I think he'll be fine. I wouldn't include him in that first group of guys. Kaiser, to me, is just the wild card for all the reasons that you have thrown out there. And the other one I think right now is Chance Huff because he's not even thrown yet. My understanding is it's just he hasn't pitched, which is a little hard to believe. What are we now, 10 games into the season? But really, to me, those two right now are the wild cards. And frankly, they're just bonus arms more than anything because you've got enough arms, more than enough to be fine. Yeah, I I, I have no information uh, and no understanding of, of why we haven't seen Huff Um you know, he, he's a guy who has a lot of talent in the arm, didn't get in a position where he could really execute uh, on on his appearances last year uh, at the level you'd like to see. But um, a guy whose who's arm is real, real live. So if he were to come around and come a force, uh, that, that's just another person who, uh, who, who is real, real weekend type stuff. We've hit the pitchers. We've got maybe seven, eight minutes left in this show here because I know you're on a time crunch. What about the hitting right now standing out? Austin Martin hits two bombs. His last time out, they finally get Dom Keegan in the lineup. We haven't really seen what he can do yet, but I think he was a guy that they thought would hit three or four in that lineup. I believe he hit five in his return. So those are topics. Uh, Anything else that you feel is worthy throwing into the hitting section here? Yeah, well, one thing I think Jay Hen Malloy did a pretty good job at first base uh, while he was filling in, bridging essentially between Stetcher Jones and, and then the return of, of Dom Keegan. Uh, he, I think, has actually drawn about eight walks. So while he hasn't had a lot of, of hits, he's been demonstrated a good approach at the plate. Um, I also want to say that like every time I see Spencer Jones, I, I like what I see at the plate. Uh, he hasn't had the results. It kind of reminds me of Aaron Westlake's freshman year where, uh, you know, every time he walked into the plate, everything looked great. Nothing was just falling. So uh, I've been really enthused by that. But I think with Keegan back, I think he's probably going to be the guy at first based on a combination of defense and, and his potential prowess at the plate. Um, very good to see him back. I was not aware. I was aware that he was out for blood clots. I was not aware how serious what he went through was. So that's a little scary and obviously very happy for him and his family that he's in a position where he can come back and play because that demonstrates that he really is healthy. Uh, other things to, to note, I think CJ Rodriguez has been really fantastic defensively behind the plate. He had a, a standout game this midweek, cut down a couple of runners. 
was really, really framing, framing the ball up uh, really well from what I saw on Wednesday. Um, Ethan was hitting the glove and CJ was, was just moving it a little bit back out into the zone. So what they were doing in some of the middle innings um, when Ethan was really spotting his fastball well is CJ setting up you know, three, four inches off the plate. Ethan's putting the ball exactly where the glove's set. And CJ just slowly brings it just a little bit back into the zone. And, and that's how you expand a zone on a major league level. It's a lot harder to do with major league umpires because they know what you're doing. But at the collegiate level, if you can do it well uh, and you can mask it, um, you know, that that's a real, real boon. Ty Duval's pretty good at it. CJ Rodriguez seems to be very adept at it and has really impressed me. And then the arm really, really was solid this midweek. Parker Nolan is a little bit of a wild card to me just because we haven't seen him much. He's got the third base job for now. I do wonder if Malloy could work his way into that picture. You mentioned the good plate approach. The talent's been there. It's been an issue of confidence, as I understand. Well, it would seem to me like he has picked some up. Then Keegan comes back. That bumps him out. I wonder if Malloy will be able to work himself into meaningful work somewhere or if Nolan just holds that job or how that all plays out between those two. You know, third base is a position you got to actually be able to defend. Um, I do not have firsthand knowledge of JM's defensive prowess at third. He was recruited in as a corner infielder and corner outfielder. Um, so, you know, there, there certainly is the potential there, but if Parker continues to hit at a reasonable pace and provides stable, if unspectacular defense, I, I don't see a scenario where he gets moved off there. And, um, you know, beyond that, uh, you know, obviously Amar could move back to third and you could put someone else in the outfield, you could shift someone like Cooper or Isaiah to center, uh, and, and put someone like Jay Hennon left or right. But my guess is if Jay Hens in the lineup, it's probably first or DH. Um, we did see CJ Rodriguez get a couple of games off from DH, which generally actually allowed Will Duff to come in, who's really impressed at the plate. Barrels up the ball, aggressive, good athlete, seems to be a pretty good base runner. And base running actually has been one deficiency we have seen. Hasn't really burned us thus far. Uh, in, in fact, we've actually been rewarded for a few base running errors. Um, uh, you know, for example, I think it was the Tuesday game, Carter Young made two base running errors on, on a single play and, and ended up safe at, at third, despite the fact that he should have been picked off at second and thrown out at third trying to advance. Parker Noland also had a, had a base running error going second to third, where I think he actually was cut down. That hasn't cost us yet, uh, but, but it's something to keep an eye on with some of the younger kids. Yeah, and Carter been... Young, Carter Young obviously is someone also to talk to talk about. Yeah, I don't think anyone in the world had him leading the team in RBI, and, and being up there with Amar and the number of total hits and batting average. I think he's hitting something like three thirty right now, three forty somewhere around there. He's been uh, great, and and the funny thing is, uh, my understanding is a couple of weeks ago you'll see he's he's wielding a red voodoo Demarini bat. Um, that is the bat that uh, Austin Martin used last year, and I think also some of his freshman year. It is the exact same bat, not not the same model. Uh, apparently, Amar passed down his bat to uh, to Carter after the first weekend of the year, 
And ever since getting that bat, he's been going gangbusters. So um, please, no one take away that bat. And <laughs> let's also not test it either. <laughs> well, and I was going to say, you beat me to it. I think if there's a real surprise so far on offense, it's Carter Young. I mean, we knew that he would have a chance to get the job entering the year at short just because they like his glove so much. And then he had that first weekend where he wasn't great in the field. He didn't hit. All of a sudden, you know, you can get your way to a 330 average at this point of the season by just some luck. And maybe that's involved there a little bit too. I don't like the 10 strikeouts. That concerns me. But what I've seen him lately, he's making pretty good contact, not just on the balls that fall in play, but he's hitting some long foul balls and things like that. There's some pop in his bat that I did not know was there. Yeah, he missed a, a, a home run going the other way, putting the ball off the top of the monster by by a handful of feet. Um, so there, he he's he's squaring up the ball, and this was the takeaway from the first weekend. Even uh, even though he had a dreadful performance at the plate, you could see that when he was swinging on a no ball, a no strike or one strike uh, pitch, he, his swing looked pretty good. It was an aggressive hack. It was identifying pitches in the zone and, and putting a good swing on it it's when he gets to two strikes that it looks and it, his his defensive approach with two strikes has not been good but i think we've seen corbin with a handful of or backs i should say with a handful of these batters uh pushing them to attack early in the zone not waiting we're seeing a little bit less of sort of the traditional 2013 style grind it out, have four four to seven pitch at-bats every at-bat, and just wear, wear batters, wear pitchers down, where even if you don't get them through uh, the first trip through the order, you're forcing them to throw 20-plus pitches every inning, and, and by the fifth inning, they're out no matter what. Um, you're not seeing that. So I think with Carter, it, it's it's not been a question of uh, can he do it. It's, it's getting him to put a ball in play on an advantageous count where where he's more likely to get a good aggressive swing in and he'll work with backs and hopefully get better at the two strike approach um but you know i think that's something to watch uh, something that could evolve but you know the guy he reminds me of in a lot of ways is riley reynolds and riley reynolds you know he had a couple bad years where he hit under 250 but he also had a couple of years where he hit i think like 310 and 340 so you can get it done. You don't necessarily need to be a home run hitter. You need to be a singles hitter. Occasionally gets a double, uh, adept at dropping down bunts. And, and that's what I think we're, we're seeing thus far through two weeks of the year with Carter. It just seems to me that a very deep and uh, pitching staff that's just stocked with elite talent and a lineup that's going to make you work pitchers, that is, seems to be a little bit of a formula for winning in postseason tournament baseball. Because you get yeah. the war pitching attrition, I don't think that's what you want with them. Yeah, I still want to see Dom Keegan a little more defensively at first because that's still my concern about uh, a, a team that's not going to bludgeon the ball. Because notwithstanding the fact that it's been uh, a far more healthy offensive performance over the course of the last uh, – over the course of this homestand, I guess. Uh, I'm not sold on this offense. Um, I, I love the top of the lineup. I think Cooper Davis is super dynamic. He's going to score a ton of runs. I think Austin Martin's the best player in, in the game today. Um, but and I think Ty Duvall does nothing but rake so long as he's healthy. I'm not sold on the rest of the lineup still, so I'm assuming that we are a pitching first team. But a pitching first team 
has to have a good, a competent or, or good, if not excellent defense behind them. Um, you know, remains to be seen. I think Austin has looked very good in center field. Cooper's sort of okay in left. Isaiah Thomas seems to be a very good right fielder. Um, you know, Parker Nolan has handled everything at third so far, but I don't think he's going to make the spectacular plays. Carter Young has looked very good at shortstop. Harrison Ray, uh, notwithstanding an error this midweek, is a consistent, uh, very good defender at second. The question is, what happens if you know the first day, first base defense isn't better than it was in the first weekend uh, of the season, where it was an unmitigated disaster, for lack of a better uh, lack of a better term, even if it's a little bit harsh. Um, you know, it obviously doesn't it doesn't hurt when your your pitching staff is striking out thirty five percent of the opponents. That reduces the reliance on defense. It has been fun. It'll be interesting to watch the week ahead. We will talk about it next week. In the meantime, you will be tweeting about it. Tell people where they can follow you. I am at um, at AaronFit.com. No, no. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure he appreciates I, that. <laughs> yeah. I am uh, at Talk on, on the Twit box. And uh, it's always good fun to follow and interact with folks on there. So feel free to drop a tweet. Aloha, sir. Aloha, indeed. All right. This is Chris Lee, the host of the Vandy Sports Podcast. Thank you for listening. We will be be back with more episodes later this week and next. 